Thank you for listening to the Christ the King Church podcast. We exist to help people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctksensi.com. Well, good morning, church, and Merry Christmas. Get to say that a couple more times. I get a whole month worth of getting to say Merry Christmas. Uh, it's great seeing all of you here today and uh, to, just to be in the Lord's house to worship together. And um, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm glad you're here with us. We're doing a series through the Gospel of Luke. And where we are at this particular part of the series is this, this teaching block where Jesus, over the course of several chapters, there's lots of red letters. If you have a red letter Bible, there's lots of red letters where Jesus is teaching his people. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at the marks of true discipleship. So over the past few weeks, you may have noticed that um, the the teaching of Jesus in Eric's sermon and in Alex's sermon has focused on distinguishing true disciples from false disciples. And this is because there's always going to be uh, those that are not true followers of Christ. There's always going to be those who claim to be Christians, but their hearts are not truly converted. Many of you have had this experience. I know this because I've, I've talked to you and I've heard your stories. The experience where you've spent many years in church. You spend many years around other Christians, doing Christian things, going to youth group, going to church service, whatever. But it wasn't until some time later that it clicked and the lights came on. And at that moment, that's when you were converted and you knew it. You knew something was different. So you, were, you thought you were a Christian only to later discover that you were actually an imposter. But God, through the work of his spirit, turned on the lights, and he showed you your need for Christ, your sin, and the redemption that is offered in Jesus, and you became a Christian then. You were converted then, even though previously you were amongst Christians. God was merciful to you, and he softened you and humbled you, and you're a Christian. So that's, that's the experience of many people, and that may be the experience of some of you that are here today. And so over these uh, few weeks of the teachings of Jesus, Um, That's what Jesus is drawing out, and that's what we're highlighting in our preaching. Laura and I, we used to work for CREW, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ, but worked for CREW, missionary organization, global, thousands of missionaries, and we would do these conferences in Fort Collins, Colorado, every other year. And uh, before he passed away, the founder, Bill Bright, would uh, come uh, to these conferences, and he would speak. And... Inevitably, every time he would share the gospel and give people the opportunity to, to pray and receive Christ as their Savior. And I'm like, bro, these are missionaries. These are professional Christians. Why are you doing this altar call here at a staff conference? And that's because Bill Bright had read his Bible. He knew that there were men and women who could even go into ministry and their hearts not be truly converted. So over these... Over these last couple of weeks, I've been convicted, listening to Eric preach and Alex preach and really considering what they were saying and and asking myself, do I truly know the Lord? Am I truly converted? And that's been a healthy thing for me to reflect on, and it's good for you to do that too. It's good to, to examine yourself 
so that, as Eric talked about last week, we're never being presumptuous in our faith. We're never presuming something to be true of us that isn't true. And so we examine our hearts and we, um, we, we look to see, do we truly know Christ? So today I'm going to follow up on those two sermons with Jesus' teaching about what it truly looks like to follow Jesus. And so in, in our text, there are three marks of a true disciple, and that's what we're going to look at. So let's dig in. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. And we'll be looking at the marks of true discipleship. I want to start reading at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This is God's word. I want to switch over to my technology here. We should be able to see this on the live stream today. Do we have it up there? All right, we got it there. All right. Let's go back to the beginning here. Okay. So today we're looking at the marks of true discipleship, and let's begin in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him. Great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them. So who is Jesus talking to? The crowds. He's talking to the crowds. Now let's just pause here for a moment, because this was a mixed multitude. Before I go on, I want to make sure that my screen settings are not going to go dark here. Okay, we're good. Um, there was a mixed multitude, which meant that there were lots of people that were hanging around Jesus, right? Jesus is a guy that people enjoyed being around, as you might imagine. They were attracted to Jesus, and they were intrigued by Jesus. They enjoyed being near Jesus. And some of them were there because they were true disciples. They wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to be disciples. But others were there because he's interesting, and you might catch a miracle or two. While, while you're there. But they weren't necessarily interested in becoming disciples. And the thing is, is that Jesus is not impressed by crowds. He's not looking to attract crowds. Jesus was not looking to maximize attendance. He's not driven by numbers. Jesus came to make disciples, not to draw a crowd. 
disciples who are completely surrendered to him and who treasure Christ above all. So imagine yourself. Imagine yourself as a typical church leader. And as a church leader, you've got huge crowds that are coming to church each week. That's exciting for a, as a church leader. Um, it's, it's cool to, to show up at church and there's lots of people there. So every week, you're, you're drawing these huge crowds to church. Your ministry's growing. The money's flowing. It feels good. You think the Spirit has come. So if that's the case, what do you think will be your biggest priority? Or at least one of your biggest priorities? It's going to be to keep the crowds coming back, right? You don't want to do anything to jeopardize the crowd. Because we're driven by crowds. Ministry leaders are driven by ego. Like we, we like the crowds. And it's tempting to, to want to be able to attract more and more people and to sort of cater your messaging to the whims of the crowd. The last thing you'd want to do is offend them in any way. Well, Jesus is not your typical church leader. Jesus doesn't care about making the crowds happy because he has a totally different purpose. His purpose is to call people to genuine discipleship. So what he does is he highlights the rigors of true discipleship. Three weeks ago, um, we talked about Jesus. He used this idea of a winnowing fork. He said the winnowing fork is in his hand. And, and, I, and I explained to you how a winnowing fork is used to separate wheat from chaff. Wheat being the valuable, uh, the grain that you would eat, and that the chaff is the thing that's blown away or burned into a fire. That's, that's been sort of a theme going through these, uh, these last few sermons and the last the few texts we've been looking at. So this winnowing fork is a metaphor that Jesus uses to describe his ministry. And so as he highlights the rigors of true discipleship, he's separating the crowd. It's, it's his teaching is like a winnowing fork. And he's forcing people to decide. And so what you have is, is, is this, he's parting the crowd. He's cr causing a bit of a division within the crowd. You have on the one hand, true disciples. That's the wheat. They were drawn to him because they recognized the incalculable worth of Christ and of the salvation that he brings of the kingdom of God. Those are the true disciples. And they want that more than anything else. That is their desire, that's their treasure, that is their heart, true disciples. But in his teaching, he also is able to identify the false followers, false followers. And his words repelled them. It kind of drove them away, actually. Because they're like, my life is hard enough as it is. Why do I want to add any more headaches to my already difficult life? And whenever Jesus comes along and he highlights difficulty of, uh, of the cost of following him, it forces people to decide, am I actually in? That's not what most church leaders do. Most church leaders want to presume and teach presumptuously, oh, everybody's in. Of course you're in. Just the slightest bit of, uh, of commitment at all is, is fine. You're in. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus wanted to make sure that the people following him were actually converted. And so he would often highlight the difficulties of discipleship. And so Jesus, he puts his cards on the table. He says, discipleship isn't easy, but it's the way of the kingdom and it's the way of eternal life. And then he goes on to identify three markers, three markers 
of true discipleship, and I want to show those to you here. The first marker is that true disciples put Jesus first. True disciples put Jesus first. Verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, whoops. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother. So the word hate here is operative. Father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. So when he says, if anyone comes to me, the word comes to me, the idea there is, this is salvation. So you're coming to me for salvation. So if anybody comes desiring salvation, but they do not hate father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what is he doing here? He's saying, you have to put me first. And if anything else comes before me, you cannot be a disciple. That's a mark. A true disciple puts Christ first. So in this context, you might be thrown off by the word hate. This is a Semitic idiom. Semitic is in a, uh, the Semitic languages, Hebrew and other ancient Near East languages. It's an idiom, hate, means in this context to love less. It, it, in our, that, that's, there's a, ra- a broader range of meaning of the word hate than what we have in English. In, in English, we would never say hate, but that's a literal translation, but the contextual meaning is that you love less. So there's Jacob, have I loved? Esau, have I hated? You might be familiar with that text. It doesn't mean God hated Esau. It means that God favored Jacob in some way. That's the same idea here. So Jesus says to hate somebody, it means to love them less. It means to put them second. It doesn't mean you don't love them anymore. It means that your love for them is subordinate to your love for God. The way Jesus says this in Matthew's version, Matthew's version of a similar text, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do you see that? If you love something more than Christ, then you're not a true disciple. You cannot be a true disciple if something else is is uppermost in your affection and in your allegiance. So what Jesus is talking about is properly ordered loves. Of course, you want to love your family, your wife, your children, your mother, your father, your kids, your your sons, daughters, and so forth. But you want to love them in the proper order of priority. What he's doing is he's applying the first and second great commandments. We talked about this three weeks ago. The first great commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That means God comes first. He is uppermost. He is supreme. He is ultimate. And then he said, the second is like it. You love your neighbor as yourself. That's where there's love for neighbor. And of course, um, you love yourself. So these, these ideas, there's a sequencing. There's an order of priority. And that's what Jesus is highlighting. True disciples have the right priority. They put God first. God is the most important thing in their lives. He's saying it's a sin to love people more than you love God. That's the sin of idolatry. 
Anytime you put anything in the place where God belongs, you're committing a sin of idolatry. It's putting a creature in the place of the creator. It's giving greater allegiance to a lesser being. And that's, that, that, that is a lie, that is living a lie, because that no creature is able to function in the place of God. So true disciples treasure Christ above everything else. There's nothing that can take his place, including Perhaps especially the people that we love most, because those are the ones that we will be most tempted to idolize. He mentions family, because no one on earth can test your allegiance to Christ more than your close family members. Here's one woman I know. Um, She had a daughter, and her daughter came out as a lesbian. And as her daughter did this, uh, she began to insist that her mother accept her lifestyle and accept it as a legitimate choice for a Christian. So what did the mother do? The mother was now forced to choose an allegiance. Do I cooperate with your lie and say the thing that God calls evil, I'm going to call good, and I'm going to give it an affirmation and say that's good Christian living? But her daughter required that. And so for the mother, she was forced to choose an allegiance. Would Christ be first, even if it was costly in her relationship with her daughter? And praise God, she made the right choice. And she suffered the the pain of, of a fractured and strained relationship with her daughter. But that was the right thing to do. Because she cannot accommodate a lie from her child and compromise her allegiance to Christ in the process. She, was, she had to be firm about what, what Scripture teaches. When the people we love most don't know Christ or they don't want to follow Christ, we're going to be tempted to put them before God because we want to maintain the relationship. And when you choose Christ above them, It might feel to them like hatred. You've experienced this. I know you have. Some of you have experienced this, where you've made a difficult decision to be obedient to Christ, and it's it's strained a relationship, and the other person will say things like, why do you hate me? Why don't you love me? It feels like hatred to them. Another way that I've seen this play out is when you assume that that's what God wants you to do, right? You assume that, you assume God loves people more than everything else. People are the most important thing to God. And so God's willing, he's a big guy, he can handle himself. God's willing to take a back seat to people in order for you to be able to maintain that relationship. So we assume that the way we worship God and the way we follow God is to allow people to occupy the place that God belongs. We do this, people do this. We're tempted to do this. Here's the way it goes. So suppose a commitment to Christ would cause a rift and an important relationship. And so you you tell yourself, God doesn't want that to happen. God wants unity. God wants togetherness. God wants peace. God would not want any any sort of disagreement or any sort of problem in a relationship. So the Christian thing to do is to preserve the relationship at all costs. In my experience, 
The most common, or at least a very common way this happens, is in our relationships with non-Christians. Because we love non-Christians. We want people to know Jesus Christ. We want them to, to experience eternal life and to have their sins forgiven and to be able to, to, uh, to experience the joy of knowing their Savior, knowing God. And because we want people to know Christ and have their sins forgiven, we assume God wants us to love them more than Him as a way to show them how much we love God. Like, you have made an idol of yourself, and so I'm going to win you over by also making an idol of yourself. And then hopefully you will see that because I'm willing to cast aside God, that God is that important. It's, it, it's, it's a way of saying God idolizes you also. Don't you want to be a Christian? We assume that God would rather us blaspheme his holy name than dare offend a fellow human with truth. We assume God would rather us discard him and cast him aside and ignore him than to jeopardize an important relationship. We assume God's top priority is people. We assume created humans are the center of God's existence. And so we tell ourselves, God can take care of himself. He doesn't need us to worry about his holy name. He doesn't need us to honor and revere him. He's fine. He's not harmed or injured in any way. God will be just fine. We don't need to worry about his honor. We've got souls to save. That's the important thing. But this sort of thinking is exactly wrong because it's a sin of idolatry. It's making people into idols. It is prioritizing them above Christ. We cannot do that, even though it's difficult and we're tempted to do so. This is so common. I mean, this is so common with modern, modern evangelicals. We worship the approval of non-Christians and we call that mission. That's not mission. Mission is upholding the glory and honor and reverence of God uppermost, our affection for Christ uppermost in our hearts and declaring that that is the way of life and declaring that they too can hold Christ and treasure him and the uppermost of their affections through faith in Jesus by repenting of their sin and falling before him and crying out for mercy and being forgiven. That's how we do mission. We don't do mission by making non-Christians into idols that we worship and desire their approval more than everything else. We do mission by showing them how glorious and supreme and wonderful and beautiful and magnificent Christ is. That's evangelism. We don't win anybody to Christ. We're, we're, by doing that, we're, we're, we're drawing people into idolatry if we seek and worship their approval more than anything else. So it's exchanging the glory of the uncreated eternal God for created beings, lesser beings. Jesus tells us not to do that. Hear me on this. God's top priority is God. That might seem strange. But God's top priority is God. It is not, God loves us. Without a doubt, God loves us. God treasures us. God, we are a priority to God. But his top priority is himself. It is to display the honor and worth and glory of his own holiness eternally and throughout all the universe. It is to put his own magnificence on display. 
If you disagree with me, you can read Desiring God by John Piper. It'll rock your world. But it is, it is, it is true. Let me show you a text here. This is Romans eleven thirty six. This is just the first one that came to mind, but I think it'll, it'll do. For from him and through him and to him are all things. From him, through him, to him are all things. To him be what? Glory forever. There's so much power and truth in the prepositions. Everything is from God. Everything happens through God. It is him who sustains it and holds it together. And everything is to him. It is, it is ultimately aimed at him. All things. And this is all so that his glory can shine throughout the universe. God must be first. Friends, this has been an issue in our church. Where we put people first and we put God second. We think about his honor second. We, we, we reverence and obey him second. Christ needs to be first, always. To do less, to do otherwise, is idolatry. It's sin. No more will that happen at Christ the King Church. You will never love another person as God intended you unless your love for him surpasses your love for them. Because you love them through Christ. That's how you do it. So a question, would you be willing to lose or risk close relationships if those relationships became a hindrance to your devotion to Christ? If the answer is no, then you cannot be a disciple. Because you have an idol in your heart that's sitting on the throne that belongs to Jesus Christ. We might say, Jesus, that would be so hard though. Jesus, to do what you're talking about here, to put you first, think about how much I would suffer. You know my family, they're nuts. You saw Thanksgiving. My family's crazy. If I truly followed you and my family knew about it, they would go bananas. I would really suffer. Well, the second mark of a true disciple, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Second mark, true disciples are willing to suffer for their faith. Jesus uh, used this language, bear his own cross. It's an interesting word choice because he had not yet gone to the cross. But they knew what a cross was. They knew what happened on crosses. To bear your own cross, especially in light of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, that's a particular kind of suffering because Jesus was about to suffer in that very way. He himself would be crucified. So whenever people were crucified in the Roman times, they were sometimes required to carry their own crosses. And that happened to Jesus as well. So if you think about um, the average cross in that time was about seven to nine feet uh, tall. 
And then there was a cross beam that was about five or six feet wide. It had to be wide enough to, uh, to be able to mount onto the, the upright beam and then sustain a person that was hanging from the cross. And it's the cross beam, most likely, that Jesus had to carry. It's a beam of wood, five or six feet long. That's really heavy. The cross beam would have weighed, people estimate, 75 pounds. Now, some of you guys are strong. You're, you're uh, weightlifter dudes. Well, the average Jew in the first century would have been about five feet tall. They made them littler in those days. <laughs> The point is that a cross is a heavy weight. It is a heavy burden. And Jesus says a true disciple must be willing to bear that burden. Bear your own cross means suffer for being a Christian. He's not talking about suffering in the way all humans suffer just as part of a human experience in a fallen world. He's talking about suffering as a Christian, suffering for his sake, to suffer for Christ, to suffer with Christ. And this idea that true disciples need to be willing to suffer for their faith is all over the New Testament. Do a search, go to uh, Bible Gateway or something like that. Just search the word suffer in the New Testament. You'll see what I'm talking about. It's everywhere. Not all suffering for Christ is the same. Let me give you four quick examples of ways that you might be called upon to suffer for Christ. The first one is you can suffer simply for being a Christian. Those that hate God are going to hate those who love God, naturally. Um, John 15, 20, Jesus said, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's simply for being a Christian. The second one, you can suffer for believing what Christians believe. These all have a B word in there. Baptist in me just can't, can't stop. Believing what Christians believe. So you might, be, you might need to suffer for Christ by upholding unpopular biblical truths. Unpopular popular biblical truths. There's lots of them these days. Um, this is 1 Peter 1, 19, or 29 to 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And I'm sorry, this is Philippians. Uh, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Number three, you can suffer for behaving like a Christian. Following Christ, that will move you against the current of the world, right? So if the world is like a current, it's like a river, it's pulling people. And if you follow Christ and behave like a Christian, you're going to be moving against the current, so you may suffer for behaving like a Christian. Now, here's the First Peter verse. First Peter 3.14 says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. He's talking about the suffering that happens because you're obeying Jesus faithfully for righteousness' sake. And the fourth one is, you can suffer for belonging to a faithful church. Or belonging to a faithful Christian group even. We may suffer because we're connected to others who suffer or because we're connected to an organization that is doing the things that I just mentioned. So as a church, Christ the King Church, we are desiring to be obedient to Christ. I mean, the, the, the theme of this sermon is built into our mission statement. We're helping people know, love, and obey Jesus as Lord over all of life. 
We're about making true disciples. And that means you are part of a community of people who are together striving after obedience and true discipleship, which means to the extent that our faithfulness is known, then it might draw attention from those who would want to harm the cause of Christ. I'll just be blunt with you. You might draw more attention being a member of Christ the King Church than going to Crossroads. Because we're about making true disciples. We're not about drawing the biggest crowd in Cincinnati. We're about making true disciples. And that means there will be unpopular stances that we take. Now, that is for our benefit. That is for your benefit because we are upholding the truth of Scripture. We are treasuring Christ above all, even in difficult things. And so as disciples, it is good for us. Nevertheless, there are some some churches that have a, a, a reputation or name recognition and they will draw attention because of those things. John MacArthur is an example. Um, he is a man who has done it faithfully for decades. And there have been times when I've personally repented in my heart because I used to think, oh, what's he all hot and bothered about? Chill out, Johnny Mac. You'll be all right. And then I've seen, you know what, he's right. And I've seen where I have been in error by by adding to the, the, the maligning of his name by making fun of him. I've done that. And God has convicted me of that. A faithful man of God who has stood firm. I don't always agree with him. But that's a man that because of his faithfulness, he has drawn a lot of fire. That can happen if you belong to a faithful Christian church. So 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six: if one member suffers, all suffer together. But there's a good side. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. It is the communal aspect of our faithfulness. Here's the thing. Nobody likes pain. If you like pain, let me make you an appointment with a doctor or something. Nobody likes pain. Nobody wants to suffer. Nobody thinks, ah, oh, that's cool. I want to suffer. You know, that's, that's weird. That may be the understatement of the year, but, and we'll always be tempted to avoid pain as much as possible. If we can find ways around it, we're going to do it. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to, we don't want to experience pain. But Jesus tells us here, what does he say? Whoever does not bear his own cross, whoever is not willing to suffer, for Christ's sake, If you're not willing to suffer, you cannot be my disciple. That's hard words, isn't it? How about the third one? True disciples finish well. True disciples finish well. Let's look at the remainder of our text. Verse 28. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first... Notice that. First, sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. See, I'm left-handed, and I got this, this, this hook thing going on here, and it makes doing the technology a little weird. 
All right, does not first, let me try this again, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. You see the starting and the finishing. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Finishing. Finishing is important. True disciples finish well. Well, he goes on. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. He counts the cost to make sure he's able to finish. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Renouncing all that he has, he's referring to what he just talked about. Counting the cost and making sure that you are willing. You've got to be all in with Jesus. Verse 28 talks about completing. Verse 29, able to finish. Verse 30, able to finish. Jesus is concerned about finishing well. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he said, it is better never to begin than not to proceed. Basically, how you start doesn't matter if you don't finish. Some churches I've, I've heard of become fond of spontaneous baptisms. Um, you might call them impulsive baptisms, right? It's uh, somebody attends a church service, they get all worked up, it's kind of exciting and emotional. And I think, you know what? By golly, I want to be a Christian. I want to get baptized. They've got water. They've got towels. They've got probably some clothes for me to change into. I won't get baptized right now. But they haven't counted the cost. And two weeks later, they're, they're nowhere to be found. It was an emotional thing. I've seen this happen a hundred times in this church. Somebody comes along and they'll introduce me. Pastor, this is the best church I've ever been a part of. You guys are amazing. I, I want to sign up for everything. I put me on every team. And they don't even show up the following week. It's, they're impulsive. They, they haven't counted the cost. Jesus is saying, like, hey, like, true disciples, they think about, okay, I'm, am I in? Am I in with Jesus? Is Jesus worth it for me to really commit my life to him? True disciples are ones who've counted the cost, and they know that they're in and they're going to finish the race. True disciples finish well. They persevere to the end. They don't fall away. Now, we, in Reformed theology, we call this the doctrine of perseverance. The doctrine of perseverance. Um, you can read about that in our statement of faith. Um, it is, we're not saying that we're saved. Alex mentioned this in his sermon a couple weeks ago. We're not saved by works. We're not saved because we obey. Rather, our obedience is the most genuine indicator of saving faith. People who don't finish were never saved in the first place. So let's put it all together. Why do true disciples finish well? What is it that true disciples do? What's the secret sauce to finishing well? Well, as I already said, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by perseverance. We're not saved by, by obeying God. That's not what saves us. We're saved by grace through faith. 
We're saved because we believe in the finished work of the cross, that Jesus accomplished everything on our behalf, and that draws us in, and we want to follow him and be near him because of what he has done for us. The secret sauce is not effort. The secret sauce is their treasure. True disciples know Christ is everything. And so for those of you here today that are true disciples, you know Christ is everything to you. He's everything. Yes, sometimes it's hard. Yes, sometimes you're tempted to fall away and, and, and sin and, and, and uh, rebel against God. Yes, it's challenging. Yes, there's suffering. But you know there's nowhere else you would rather be. There's nothing else you would rather do because Christ is everything. He's worth it. Is Christ worth it to you? And so perhaps there are some in here that you're false followers. You're here. You're doing the thing. But The parable of the sower says, hey, whenever hard times come along, whenever there's trial and difficulty, you fall away. Why? Because Christ is not everything to you. And what I am appealing to you now is to say Christ is everything, to recognize he is everything. True disciples are willing to renounce everything. That's what he says here in this verse. Whoever does not renounce everything can't be a disciple. Why? Because Jesus is everything. He is everything. So you have to renounce everything else. Everything is Christ. He is all. He is more beautiful, more glorious, more magnificent than anything in all creation. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And so Matthew Henry, he says this, True disciples must be willing to quit that which was very dear and therefore must come to him thoroughly weaned from all their creature comforts. I thought that was a modern word. He wrote that a couple hundred years ago. Come to Christ thoroughly weaned from all their creature comforts. Friends, I love some creature comforts. I love me some comfort. And I have to be willing to renounce that because Christ is better than my comfort. He's better than my pleasure in other things. Weaned of your creature comforts and died to them so as to cheerfully part with them. You know, I was just thinking of that text in Hebrews when it says that the saints of old gladly accepted the plundering of their property because their treasure was Christ. That verse always bugs me. I'm like, I don't want people running off with my stuff. It's my stuff. But I have to be willing to let my property be plundered. I have to be willing to renounce everything, to lose everything, to sacrifice everything in order to maintain and to have Christ. The treasure is Christ. That's it. Christ is all. And if you treasure Christ above all, I promise you, you will finish. And you will finish strong. You will finish well because you have everything that you need to finish strong. Christ is center, uppermost. He is number one in your heart. He is everything to you. And if Christ is everything to you, then it doesn't matter what pain they throw at you. It doesn't matter what difficulties come your way. You're not going to abandon him because you've got nothing else. What else is there other than Christ? That song, I give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Jesus. I heard that this morning. Amen. Yes. Lead us, William. Tell us how to do it. How do we do it? Yes. 
You can have all this world, give me Jesus, because he is everything. He is supreme. Is he supreme in your life? Friends, he's worth it. What else is there if not the creator, if not the one who died for you, if not the one who says, I want to save you from the hell you rightly deserve. I want to take you home. You're mine. What else is there? There's nothing that can compare with that. True disciples treasure Christ not as an act of the will. You're not white-knuckling it until the grave. It is the life that is in you now because Christ is all. Through the gospel, our desires are transformed because the gospel is where God's heart is most fully revealed. The worth of God is incalculable. We can't even begin to comprehend the value of Christ and what we have inherited in his kingdom. He's the creator, the sustainer of all that exists, and we rebelled against him. We said, I want nothing of that. We want to go our own way. I want my friends more. I want my family more. I want my treasure more. I want my career more. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want you to challenge me. I don't want you to tell me what to do. I want to do it my way. And so I'm not going to listen to you, God. That was our heart. But then Christ came and he shined the light in our heart and he exposed all the wicked darkness in our souls and the tenderness of Christ came to us and he says, I want you to come follow me. I'm going to erase that. I'm going to wipe that away. I'm going to cleanse you of every sin, every impurity. I'm going to wash you clean. That's what he did for us. And when we see what Christ has done, it, it, it electrifies us. And it says in our hearts, it makes us believe and to cry out, Christ is everything. He's everything. There's nothing else. There's no higher treasure. There's nothing worth what I have received in Christ. God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus to die in our place that we could be reconciled to him. And in the gospel, he has graciously given us not only forgiveness and eternal life, but he's given us himself. We have received Christ. And if you have Christ, you have everything. So today, if you're a Christian, if you're suffering right now, if following Christ is costing you something, and you're tempted to give up. Listen, don't give up. Don't abandon Christ. He's worth it. He's worth every tear. He's worth every difficulty you face. He's worth every friend you lose. He's worth it. Faithfulness to Christ is worth it. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or maybe as you've examined your heart, you wonder, am I a false follower? Listen. Jesus, he's teaching you to count the cost because he wants you, he's inviting you to follow him. He's inviting you to become a disciple and saying, come, follow me. Come, be a disciple. Come, renounce all you have. Come, receive life. Receive me. You will gain everything. And you will already own everything. Come, suffer with me. And through that suffering, you will be sanctified and you will become more like me. You will become more fit for the kingdom.
Come, treasure me above all. Allow my love for you to transform you. And then allow your love for me to sanctify you and sanctify your love for others. For all of us, Christ is worth it. He's worth every cost. He's everything. So count the cost. And then come, follow Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we worship you. You are worthy of all praise. Thank you. Lord, I, we cannot begin. There are no words, there are no superlatives that can adequately capture all that you've done and all that we've been given. Christ, you've given us all. At the cost of your own life, when they took the crossbeam and made you carry your own implement of death up a hill, and they nailed your hands and feet to the cross, and they hung you there until you died. Lord Jesus, we cannot begin to comprehend the injustice, the evil of that act, and yet we are complicit. And we thank you, Jesus, that you loved us who are your enemies. You say, Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were your enemies, Christ died for us. We thank you, Jesus, that you loved your enemies so that we now can humbly come before you, bowing the knee in total surrender as true disciples, knowing and believing in our hearts that Christ is all. You are everything. We have inherited the kingdom. It's all ours. You've given us yourself. We thank you that you are so kind and so merciful and gracious to suffer an incredible weight, an incredible pain, a penalty for our sake so that we could be brought into your family. Lord, I pray for any Christian here today who is suffering or is tempted to walk away or tempted to abandon some belief because it'll make life easier. Lord, strengthen them and remind them Christ is worth it. Lord, for anyone here who does not know you, I pray, Lord, that you will shine the light in their heart and that you will show them Christ is worth it. Show your immeasurable worth to them and lead them to follow you, Jesus. We give you all praise. We worship you now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We are Christ the King Church. For more information about our church, please visit us at ctkcincy.com.